little bit over 20 years ago, we moved from the 20th century to the 21st century. We heard an expression often during that time that only consisted of two letters and one number, Y2K. The fear was that the computers that control much of the infrastructure of our nation would not be able to make the change from 1999 to the year 2000. The, the 1990s had been one of the most positive decades in the 20th century. The Berlin Wall had come down near the end of the 1980s. The Cold War had been won. Many nations perceived the United States as the leading nation of the world. The pundits often referred to the 20th century as the American century. And now there was the threat of all the crises that would come if Y2K actually occurred. You know, and I know, that did not happen. But I wonder today, a little bit over 20 years later, as we look at what has happened in the first two decades of the 21st century, if we would trade what happened for some of those predictions. I mean, it starts with 9-11. Not only the devastation of that attack, but the whole concept of the war on terrorism comes into play. In 2007, when the smartphone is introduced, it demonstrates for the first time in history that the pace of change, the complexity of change, the deepness of all the changes that are occurring in our culture, that for the first time in history, humans cannot keep up and adapt to all the changes. In 2008, there was the crash that many compared to the depression of the 1930s. We realized that Columbine was not a one-off experience. And since then, even recently, we have seen these indiscriminate shootings that kill and hurt people and change their lives. As we have looked at the changes in nations around the world, we've seen these mass migrations of people to escape, which has raised all kinds of questions related to immigration, which we as a nation are struggling with at our southern border. It seems as though the climate has gone wild as we talk about the, the fires and the floods and the earthquakes and the volcanoes and all that goes with it. We thought we had made some significant differences dealing with racial and gender issues. And we've come to find out that there have been changes, but they've not been as deep as we thought, as systemic as we thought. There's been the rise of social media, which has benefited many people, but at the same time has produced a tremendous amount of cruelty as people can speak to thousands and millions of people behind that curtain of anonymity. And then in the last decade, we have watched as the politics and the government of our nation has just deteriorated to the point where it's almost impossible to have civil discussion about disagreements. Instead, there's name calling, there's the villainization, there's the idea that you're either for this, which means you're against that, and the polarization that has achieved. It's dividing families, it's dividing friends, it's dividing communities. And now it's even dividing churches as people leave one church to go to another church, not because of the theology, but because of the politics. And then there's the pandemic that has come. And now, even as we come out of the pandemic, we are not sure how to deal with all the issues related to masks, the vaccination, all of those kinds of things. And as a result, 
We are living where people holler at each other, scream with the, at each other, where there are fights, where there are divisions. And often as I talk to many individuals, the question I hear often is, where are we going? What hope is there? What are we going to do with all of this? In fact, I would say, as someone who's 77 years of age, I probably feel less safe now as a citizen in our nation. About the only time there was maybe greater fear was when I was living during the height of the threat of a nuclear war and we were told to crawl under our desk when the air raid siren went off. We went through the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the question is, is there hope? Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, we recognize that in him we always have hope. But the question I sense today is, what does that mean? How do we deal with it? How do we come to enter into the hope that helps us deal with the week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year events that are happening within our nation and in our world? To perhaps provide a significant answer to part of that problem, I want to go back to the 40 days that Jesus had left on earth. He had come, he had ministered, he had died, which was the purpose for his coming. He is raised from the dead, and Jesus has 40 days left before he goes back to the Father. During those 40 days, Jesus basically modeled two key behaviors. Those behaviors are described for us by Luke in the book of Acts. Follow along as I read from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. The two behaviors that Jesus constantly repeated was demonstrating he was alive and talking about the kingdom of God. For me, those two behaviors produce a great sense of hope. One might be more obvious than the other, but both of them, I believe, for me and for us, offer great hope in the day and age in which we live. If you were to go to most Americans today and say, once you get past the bunnies, the eggs, the fashion, what's the purpose of Easter? I'm not sure a lot of them would know, but those who do know would say, well, the purpose of Easter is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you then were to say to them, well, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We are finding from all the statistics that more and more Americans would say, no, that that's not something they believe, particularly in the younger generations that are much larger in their cohorts than the baby boomer generation. And they would say, I'm not sure. Perhaps to encapsulize it, a famous comedian who for 40 years gave his comedic monologues about the culture in which we live. Hundreds came to hear him. Thousands of times came to hear him. Near the end of his life, about two years ago, he was asked, in light of all that you have said about our culture, what do you think about the American public? 
His response was not very flattering. He said this, If you can convince people that a man was alive, he died, and came back from the dead, you can convince them of anything. He obviously did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you move into the scientific world, the academic world, as you listen to many of the pundits who comment on our world today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which makes Christianity different from all the other of the world's faiths, is something that many do not believe. A while back, I was talking to an individual in his 50s, great job, good husband, wonderful father and a great family. And for all of his early life, he had gone to church, been there every Sunday. In fact, when he was in college, he ministered to young people and talked about Jesus Christ. But as the difficulties of life began to impact him, as he made some failures, as others failed him, as there were all kinds of struggles with people he cared about, he came to the decision that he no longer believed in Jesus Christ. He no longer accepted Christianity. And for over a decade, he lived at best as an agnostic, at worst as an atheist. But a few years back, he made a U-turn in his faith and came back and said, no, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. I asked him, I said, when you made that turn to come back, what was the key issue that caused you to say, I now need again to be a follower of Jesus? He said, well, as I read and studied, I began to look at the resurrection. I realized that all of the followers of Jesus believed strongly that he had been raised from the dead. But what was more impressive is many of them actually died for their faith in a resurrected Savior. He said it may be that rare individual who will die for something they know to be a lie, but most people, if it's something they believe, they will maybe die for it, but if they know it's a lie, they won't. And then he said, you know, it wasn't like Jamestown, where many adults took their own life because of their belief in the follower who had taught them a lie. They, they took the, the lives of their own children in the process. He said, Jesus was out there for 40 days. You could see him walking. You could hear him teach. You could touch him. You could watch him eat. And they believed and were willing to die for the resurrection. He said, that's what caused me to come back as a follower of Jesus Christ. For 40 days, Jesus demonstrated I'm alive. Now for me, that provides great hope because the Bible tells me that when I identify with Jesus Christ and I place my faith in him, the book of Hebrews says it's impossible to please God without faith. There is that act of faith there's also that supporting evidence that for 40 days, in the midst of everyday life, he demonstrated he was alive. And as someone who is 77, 
I realize that death is far more closer in my experience than it was when I was a teenager. But my hope is that I have not only received the quality of life that Pastor Dale has been talking about in this whole series from head to lip, but the quantity of life that says, if I die, if the circumstances of this world get so bad that I get crushed, I will come back to life in a time of peace and righteousness and life. That, for me, provides great hope. Now, you say, well, Paul, okay, I can see how that would provide hope. But what about this idea that Jesus preached the kingdom of God for 40 days? Well, you realize Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of God all of his ministry. In fact, in the book of Mark, after he is baptized by John the Baptist, it says he preached the kingdom of God. He said, repent and believe. And that was the essence of the kingdom of God. But it's been interesting that the disciples of Jesus for 2,000 years have struggled with that concept. His own disciples who had followed Jesus, when they heard the kingdom of God, they said, now, just a few verses later, are, are you now going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to defeat Rome? Are you going to set up your, your, your throne on earth and we can rule and reign with you? And Jesus said, no, that's not for you to know right now. What you need to focus on is the, my original message. You need to be witnesses of sharing with people that they need to repent and have faith. I think for those of us who have been born in America, we struggle with the concept of the kingdom of God because we don't understand Jesus as a king. We know he is our God. He's our savior. He's our advocate. He's our friend. And we have a relationship with him. But we don't see him as a king. You see, we have been raised in a nation that didn't want a king. We were a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, and as citizens, we have inalienable rights. Now, as an American citizen, I'm glad I've been born and raised in a country that believes that. But it makes it very difficult to understand, then, how do you respond to a king? I mean, in our nation, we have the U.S. Constitution. That's the basis, and that's what we talk about. But in a king, in his constitution, which is the word of God, it's not about inalienable rights. It's about blessing. It's about responsibilities. It's about focusing more on other people than on ourselves. So, for example, when I come to his constitution. I find often as an American, there are parts of scripture I like better than others. They just kind of relate to me. But I also at times say, well, I will obey that part, but I'm not sure I want to obey this part. I mean, after all, I function sometimes that way as a citizen, particularly when I drive. And I say, you know, uh, this, this whole thing about you loving me, I, I'll, I'll do what you want. You want me to pray. You want me to read your scriptures. I will do that. But you want me to be a generous person. I will give some money, but there's times I want some money for me. I want some money for our family. I want some money for my security because I'm not really sure that you're going to take care of me. 
And we struggle with saying, I'm going to obey that part. Or with our time. Yeah, I'll give you time, but you got to realize, uh, you know, you always want us to be together. You want us to be in groups. You want us to be a community that's on mission. And there are times I need my time for me. I'm glad you've forgiven me, but the idea of forgiving that person, the idea of not taking revenge there, the idea of not gossiping about that person, I will choose what I want to obey. Now, none of us can perfectly obey the Scripture. But I think too often we don't understand that our king expects us to obey. Also, if Jesus is our king, he says that we are part of his kingdom that we're a new people. We're a new nation. Now, that means that as an American or a Canadian or a Frenchman or living in Ukraine, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I have two citizenships. I'm a citizen of my nation, but I'm also a citizen of his kingdom. And the Bible is very clear that as a citizen of his kingdom, That takes priority over being a citizen of my nation. In fact, the disciples, if you look at them, Jesus, for the most part, with most of his teaching, was about being a citizen in his kingdom, not a citizen under Rome. In fact, when they showed him a coin and said, who do we pay taxes to? He said, well, you pay Caesar what Caesar's do, and you give God what God is due. He didn't take a strong position on that when they were hoping he would. In fact, if you look up the makeup of the 12, Jesus didn't seem to care about where they were coming from politically. I mean, you've got Simon the Zealot. The Zealots of Jesus' day were like the people who want to join militia in our day. They're ready to go to war. They're ready to fight. In fact, eventually they did, and Rome crushed them. He, on the other hand, you had Matthew, the tax collector, who believed if you want to get along, you got to go along. I'll make my bed with the Romans. If you look at all of them, when it came to the Samaritans, they were racists. They were bigots. And Jesus spent more time talking to them about the values of his kingdom, not the values in their nation or their politics. In our nation... We have now talked about all the different values we have, and we've labeled them with colors. You know, we have certain values that we label red and others that we label blue. Sometimes if they get mixed, we talk about them as purple. But you see, if I'm a citizen of Jesus's kingdom, my king says, if you're going to put a color to any of my values, the color is gold. Those are my values which means as a citizen in my nation, if I'm going to identify with those red values or if I'm going to identify with those blue values, I have to look at those and say, first of all, do they agree with the gold standard? Do they agree with my king's values? If they do, I lift them up. If they don't, I put them down. And I've got to realize that on both sides of those polarity of that polarity there are values that agree with the gold standards and values that disagree with the gold standard and I am called to live for my king now the question comes well Paul if that's what it means to 
talk about the kingdom of God. I need to obey the scriptures. I need to identify with my king's values. How does that produce hope? Well, Jesus was constantly talking about the kingdom of God. So he used a number of different descriptions. I want you to watch as I read just one passage out of the Gospel of Mark in how he describes his kingdom. Jesus said, How can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches, and birds can make nests in its shade. Jesus said, uh, when you plant a garden, you've got lots of seeds, but the smallest is the mustard seed. He said, that's the way my kingdom is going to be. When Jesus went back to heaven, there were at least 120 in this room in Jerusalem that we know were his disciples. If you looked at the whole land of Palestine, probably in Judea in the south and Samaria in the middle and Galilee at the north, maybe there were three, four, five thousand people who were his disciples. Compared to the population of the world, that was a blip on the radar. It was like the mustard seed. Not many people were part of his kingdom. But today, that's not true. In the second half of the 1800s, and for most of the 1900s, churches in America sent missionaries all around the world, encouraged people to go, funded them with millions and millions of dollars. But there were two places that the churches focused on primarily. The first geographical location was China. By the turn of the previous century, when we went from 1800s to the 1900s, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of missionaries in China with more going until 1940s, when the government of China changed and all the missionaries were forced to leave. The other place that churches focused on was Africa. Now, when I went to Bible college in the 1960s, I was given a book to read. The thesis of the book was that the missionaries to China had failed. They hadn't done their job. Because in the 1950s, the 1960s, whenever you talked about China, it was all about communism, it was all about Chairman Mao, that was all you heard. But in the 1970s and the 1980s, as China opened up, we realized that there were millions and millions of people in China who were followers of Jesus Christ. They were under great oppression, often under great threat, <laughs> spreading the gospel, and the church was going, growing. Missiologists, those who study missions, say today that Africa south of the Sahara is a Christian continent. With all the nations and the churches in those nations sending missionaries all over the world, including to the United States. 
Nairobi has a number of large churches, but there's one church in Nairobi that's very large. Like Wooddale, it has multiple uh, services. It also has multiple campuses. Five of the campuses are in five nations in different countries around the world. And they are now trying to establish a sixth campus in the United States. God is growing his church. Christianity today is the world's largest faith. Christianity since World War II has been the fastest growing faith in the world. And Islam in the last 10 years has caught up in the number of new people becoming converts each year. But they're way out in front of all the other of the world's faiths. India, which has one of the largest populations in the world, the estimation is that 1% of India 25 years ago was Christian today. It's close to 25%. When you look at what God is doing in the Middle East, when you look at what God is doing in other nations where there's great oppression and poverty, the mustard seed is growing to become that 12 to 13 foot bush or tree, whatever you want to call it, that towers over the rest of the plants in the garden. And that means that you and I are getting to see what our king is doing. We're part of that kingdom. We're part of that nation. And God is at work. And in the worst of circumstances, the church is growing. As I looked at those statistics that were sent out to those of us who are part of Wooddale that are in preparation for your annual meeting, it was just amazing what God is even doing just through one church and the number of people being presented the gospel, the number of people coming to Christ. The mustard seed is turning into that large plant and God is at work. And the resurrected Jesus Christ, who you and I believe in, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are getting to experience the growth of his kingdom, which means that his coming back to deal with all that's going on in the world is getting closer and closer and closer because we belong to a Savior who is at work despite the circumstances. You see, the resurrection and the preaching of the kingdom provide great hope. Let's suppose uh, 20 years ago, you and your bride or your husband with young children move into a brand new community. A bunch of other families are moving into that community and for 15 or 20 years, you get to know other neighbors, you get, your kids go to school with all of their children, you go to the football games, you go to the concerts, the plays, and it's been a great experience living in that community for 15 or 20 years. But now you decide it's time to move to another part of the country. Or suppose you're in a major corporation and you've been signed a project to go out and go to this division in the other part of the country that's not doing well. And your task is to get that division back on its feet. And after a number of years, that division is now turning a profit and it's, it's successful and things are happening. And it's a growing place and people want to work there in that division. And now the corporation is going to send you to do it again in another place in the country. Those last two or three months before you move 
you do a number of things with great intentionality. You invite people for dinner. You have lunches. You sit down and reminisce and remember the good stories. You thank people. You honor people. And you are very intentional about how you spend your time. Jesus was no different. For all eternity, he had planned to come to this earth. And then he came, born, begins his ministry, preaches the kingdom of God for three years, dies, and the night before he dies, in his prayer in John 17, he says, Father, I have done everything you asked me to do. And then he commits that last act of obedience, which is to go to the cross to die for you and for me. He's raised from the dead. And now he has just over one month, 40 days. And Jesus behaves with great intentionality. He spends time showing people, I was dead, but now I'm alive. You can touch me, you can see me, and I'll do it for 40 days. And he spent the preaching during those 40 days about being a part of his kingdom. God is saying to you and me through the behaviors of his son, Jesus Christ, no matter what's going on, no matter what the times are like, no matter where you live, how you live, whatever's happening, when you identify with Jesus, you get his life, which includes the promise and the hope of resurrection to a world of peace and love and righteousness. And you get to be a citizen who represents me to the world. That you're not to be caught up with all the stuff in your politics of your day and age. You're to obey my word and demonstrate your identity with your king. That's what Jesus did. And for me, his resurrection, his preaching on the kingdom, provides awesome hope every day of my life. Let me pray. Our gracious God, thank you for thinking enough of us not only to become human and remain God and die for our sins and defeat sin, to take Jesus from the grave and raise him from the dead to defeat death, but to give us the evidence for 40 days he was alive and then to be a part of your kingdom and to live in a time when we're seeing your kingdom become the largest plant in the garden. May his resurrection and what we're seeing in your kingdom give us great hope for tomorrow and for the future. And I pray this in his name. Amen.